Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Podcasts, and you can find our partner shows by going to harbingermedianetwork.com. Is that the right? That is <laughs> it. Like, That's know. exactly yes. it. Or you can tune in to our channel for the next week where we are probably going to be re-releasing the like telethon that we did last weekend, which was super fun. I feel like we should record live all the time, except I'm... Now that I'm saying that out loud, I've changed my mind. Sorry, carry on, Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so today we are really excited to be talking about ethical parenting. And it is a topic that Kyla and I have been really wanting to cover for a while. But neither Kyla or I or are parents, so we felt really weird about it. Um, so we have brought on Sarah Mistak uh, to talk to us today. Hi, Sarah. How's it going? Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Sarah, I feel like I am a parent because I have two cats. Is that the same thing? (laughs) I also thought that when I just had a cat. (laughs) And there are many similarities. um, But no, not the same thing. So Sarah has a master's in global affairs. She's very fancy, um, but she's also the mother to two really adorable toddlers and has thought a lot about ethical parenting during that journey. Uh, Do you want to talk a bit about uh, Maddie and Zoe maybe and uh, where you're living and stuff? Sure. Um, So I do have two adorable toddlers, and I think that the general consensus or wisdom around most parents I know are that the more adorable your children are, the bigger of handfuls they are and that, you know, <laughs> the universe makes them super adorable so that you don't pitch them in the garbage immediately because, you know, kids are, <laughs> kids are hard. <laughs> um, anyways, there I have a four-year-old daughter and a, a almost two-year-old daughter. Uh, and we currently actually live in Costa Rica and have for the last six months. We're here for my partner's job. Uh, and it's been a wonderful family adventure. And, you know, certainly the last few years have been uh, not what I expected them to be, uh, both in terms of like becoming a parent, um, but, you know, also life in general. So, you know, that's that's life, though. That's that's the adventure. So I'm wondering if we can maybe get started by talking about I know, like, it's a, it's kind of a huge topic, ethical parenting, because really like raising kids it's it's sort of like being a philosopher in a certain way because you have to like rethink every aspect <laughs> of life. Uh, but I'm wondering if maybe we could start by talking about sort of like when you and your partner were deciding to have kids, what were some of the ethical issues that came up at that point? So I would say like first and foremost, I think as with anything, parenting is such a uniquely personal thing. So obviously my experiences, my partner's experiences is totally going to be different than other people's experiences. Um, But certainly when we were thinking about having kids, like starting a family, I think certainly compared to now, you're you're looking at um, very surface level concerns. So like in my background, my educational background, my professional background, very my like concerns are climate change, you know, politics, kind of that area. And I the only thought I gave to it before we had kids was, you know, we want to we want to raise kids and we want to raise them in an environmentally friendly way. And we want to raise them to be politically conscious, kind people, you know, all these like very big, broad, aspirational goals. And then kind of to your point, calling your calling parents, calling myself a philosopher is a really nice way of putting it. But like, as soon as you have kids, like everything goes out the window. 
right? And you find yourself (laughs) second guessing and third guessing and fourth guessing every single decision. And, you know, even the words that are coming out of your mouth as you're saying them to your kids, you're like, should I be saying that? Like, what am I, what am I really imparting here? Right. But I would say certainly before I had kids or before we had kids, before we chose to have kids, it was okay. We want to, we want to raise citizens that are, you know, global citizens. We want to raise kind people who are going to better the world that they come into, hopefully, as opposed to, you know, just consume and, and, and make the world a worse off place. Definitely a good goal, but I can see how it's hard to, <laughs> to do in practice. And so I think that's what a lot of the episode today will talk about is the various dilemmas that you've encountered throughout that journey and sort of pairing that with common dilemmas that other people confront as well. I, I guess just to start with, there's been some debate about this idea of, is ethical parenting even possible? And I think you and I both read an article in New York Magazine by Lisa Miller that was very skeptical (laughs) against uh, this idea. And I'll just read a quote for the listeners before we get into a discussion. So Lisa Miller says, quote, Parenthood, like war, is a state in which it's impossible to be moral. Worse, the moral weakness of parents is always on display for children bear witness to their incessant ethical hair splitting. That is grim. That cannot yeah, I know. <laughs> like look, okay, hang on. Kristen and I are not parents, so it might be really annoying for parents listening for me to say this, but that is some bullshit. Like that, that <laughs> that's nonsense. Like parenting is hard, right? But that doesn't mean that morals stop existing. Holy shit. <laughs> so I would say like my instinct when I read because I did read that article, my instinct is like Yes, I like I agree with the at a surface level, you're constantly you're never going to get it perfectly right. And all of your faults, flaws, the very worst of your personality and behavior is constantly on display for your children to see. And as we know, human beings learn by like seeing and doing more so than they do by telling. So in that sense, I agree with her. But also like to what you're saying, Kyla, I think fundamentally what it comes down to is the standards that we're holding parents or all people to are impossibly high. And if your standard is you have to be morally perfect as a parent, you're obviously going to fail, right? So if that's the metric you're holding yourself to, of course, you're never going to get it right. As with anything else in life, right? So on the one hand, I do agree with what she's saying and that, yeah, you're not going to get it right. But also on the other hand, I'm like, okay, well, that's self-evident. You're never going to get it right. So why do we need a whole article? Yeah, like if you if you're kind of going in with the mindset that well I'm going to fail so why even try? You could apply that to anything. What makes parenting special? You know what I mean? Like you should still try just because like you're not going to be guaranteed success is not a reason to not do it. Absolutely. Just because the major corporations are, you know, massively polluting doesn't mean I'm going to stop bringing my reusable shopping bags to the grocery store like, you know, as like a very extreme <laughs> example, but that's I completely agree with you. Yeah, it's kind of like the when that boat got stuck in the Suez Canal, like we're all just that little crane trying to dig away. <laughs> so there there was one interesting part of the article that I maybe want to pick up on a little bit, um, which is just this idea that one thing that maybe is unique about parenting is that it like difficult moral choices occur when somebody's faced with two or more sort of legitimate rights their intention. And by being a parent, like you often want to prioritize, I would assume, want to prioritize the needs of your kids, but sometimes that might come into conflict with what like might benefit 
children as a whole, or at least that's the argument that um, Miller is making that like parents are inherently biased towards, um, you know, rigging the system to let their kids compete. And that overall that like creates a lot of problems. Is that something that you've encountered or do you think that's also bullshit? (laughs) I mean, I kind of think it's bullshit. Like I, yes, of course you want your kids to succeed and you want to set them up in the best possible way. But like, I think, I think socially speaking, or maybe, you know, it was just the way either I was raised or the, the way I grew up. But like, I understand that failure is a part of life, right? Failure, competition, like learning how to lose, learning how, learning the idea that, hey, you're not going to be perfect at everything all the time. Like, that's a really valuable skill. And I know enough from my own experiences that like, protecting my children from that, I mean, you know, I'm not, you know, making them lose at a board game and laughing in their face. But but in an age appropriate way, kind of like <laughs> instructing them on how to lose and learn from it and, and kind of you know play to your own strengths, but like also how to grow in other areas. I think that is part of the parenting journey, right? Like part of it is allowing your kids to fail. It's allowing them to see that like, you're not going to be number one all the time. That's just not how life works. And I don't think it does children any favors. I certainly don't think it's going to do my children any favors to set them up to this artificially high standard of, oh, you're going to be perfect all the time and life is going to be wonderful, you know, candy and rainbows. Like, that's just not, that's not the world we live in. Well, and I think in the article that, Kristen, you're you're talking about, the example that they gave specifically was like, my child had lice, but they had a test the next day. So I sent them to school with lice so that they could like, like, what are you teaching your kid there that their needs are more important than like those of their classmates. And it just feels to me like what you should be teaching them is, hey, sometimes life isn't going to go your way, but that's okay too, right? Like you're going to miss school tomorrow. We're going to shave your head. You're not going to. <laughs> I mean, there are shampoos, Kyla. But, <laughs> <laughs> but there you go. Uh, my my non-parenthood is showing. <laughs> but yeah, like like what are you teaching them when you do stuff like that, right? Like I get that you want to do what's best for your kid, but maybe in this case, what's best for your kid isn't forcing them to go to their job despite needing to take a day off, right? Like that's capitalism being taught to them. (laughs) No, I totally agree with that. And, and, but I mean, even if it was something fun that they were missing, right? Like I think, you know, you have to miss a birthday party because you're not feeling well, like that sucks and it's too bad, but that's part of life, right? Like sometimes that happens. Sometimes you know, you got to take a step back for whatever reason, whether it's health or there's an accident or something happens, disappointment and being able to, you know, this is a big thing for me and for like our parenting style, uh, understanding emotion and not labeling it as good or bad and learning how to process it, which I think is something that's, I mean, maybe I'm totally talking up my ass here, but like, I think it's a relatively new thing in, in certainly in childhood psychology, childhood development, rather than like, tamping down emotion and saying, oh, no, no, stop crying. Like, it'll be fine. Like, whatever. It's more saying, okay, it's okay to feel the way you're feeling. Like, it's okay to be super disappointed that you're like missing this or that, you know, I had to shave your head because you have lice. Like, obviously, that's an upsetting thing that happened to you. How you respond to that, how you process that emotion, that's where you can kind of like intervene and teach. And I think, you know, certainly it's something I'm learning on the fly about myself. Like, how do I process emotions before you can teach it to your kids? But like, it is, it is something definitely that comes up. And, and, and I think it speaks to that idea that like, yeah, it's, this is life, right? Like you gotta, all these like little tiny moments, like that's what, 
that's what you extrapolate into being a human being in this world, right? You need to know how to fail. You need to know how to deal with disappointment. You need to know how to find joy and, and celebrate and that kind of stuff too. So we've talked about some of the like values that you're trying to instill in your parenting, but I wonder like if you could talk a little bit about what some of the barriers are that you've encountered um, as you've tried to, to sort of instill those values. Yes. Uh, other people. <laughs> <laughs> I say that jokingly, but it's true. You're a parent. And, and on the one hand, you know, we've created, and I, I talked about this ad nauseum to you offline, Kristen, but like we've created a society now where you're expected to be able to raise a child by yourself or with a partner, right? Like in a single nuclear family type of unit, whereas evolutionarily, biologically, that's not how babies are. That's not what little kids are. We were designed to be raised by a village. You're designed to have the intervention of multiple people. Okay, well, if you're extrapolating that to like the reality, okay, I have a certain, or we have a certain, my partner and I have a certain idea of how we want our children to be raised. And like, here are the values that we're, we're trying to instill. For example, we want lower consumption. We want not a focus on like gifts, presents, like buy, 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 stuff, stuff, stuff. Like we're trying to kind of get away from that. Okay, well, there are 12 aunts and uncles and, you know, three sets of grandparents and all they want to do to show their love and affection for the children that they love, you know, and feel affectionate towards our kids, their only grandkids, their only nieces and nephews so far is to give them things, right? Like here, have presents. Like I saw this doll. I know you love Encanto. Like here are the two dolls. You know, I bought them for you. Well, okay. Now she has three versions of the same sets of dolls. Like why? <laughs> why? Like why do we need all this stuff? And like they mean well. Like you have. So when I when I say that the, one of the barriers is other people, they mean well. They're they're also showing love. They're trying to help raise our children the way they want to. But it's like trying to trying to get you on board with what we're trying to do, and explain that in a way you know there's better ways to show your affection. Here are like alternate ways to do things. Like I'm not nitpicking, or I am nitpicking, but I'm not. You know, I'm trying not to tell you what to do here. However, I am telling to tell you what to do. Like it's not aligning with with the values we're trying to teach our children. The gift giving one is like super omnipresent right now because we're going into Christmas and because we live abroad. So we aren't close to our family geographically. It was my eldest daughter's birthday in October when we were last in Canada. We went back. I brought back a big, like a checked bag, empty, totally empty, because I knew I was going to buy food and stuff. But like I knew she was going to get stuff for her birthday. And I had to leave stuff behind and my bag was overweight. Like we paid an overweight charge and it's just so much stuff. And that was just one kid's birthday, right? Like we really had to, it really made me think like it, you know, and it, it's frustrating and upsetting because you're, it, there's packaging and there's, and it's just so much stuff. And like, she's old enough now that we go to the store or it, even her, it was her birthday. And she was like, you know, I want presents or like, I want a treat or I want this or I want that. Okay. Well, I didn't teach you that, but the world has taught you that you are cute and adorable and people want to give you stuff and you're going to get new stuff all the time. And like, that's so like already there's a disconnect, right? And she's only four. I want to just jump in here on that because like, as you say, a lot of the, I mean, a lot of the difficulties, of course, that you live abroad, but a lot of it is even if you live near to your family, because there's that expectation that we all must raise our families in this like little nuclear bundle of you, your partner, and your child, there's no space then for 
the family members that love your kid to spend time with that kid to show their love. Like, like how often do you see your family listeners <laughs> who are like in the same towns as your family? How often do your kids spend time with their 12 aunts and uncles and their grandparents on both your side and your partner's side and not only that, but then she goes to school and she sees her friends who have their birthdays and they get presents. And so why shouldn't she? And like kids have a very keen sense of justice and injustice. And so, of course, it would be she would think that she's being like neglected if she's not being treated as, you know, well in her mind as her peers. Right. Like it's just messed up. No, absolutely. <laughs> and, the, and the idea of like what you what you spoke about in terms of like seeing grandparents, like the, the that whole nuclear unit idea absolutely factors in. And it's also like from the parental side, it's been an unlearning, if you will, from our end, because because you're expected to be able to do it by yourself. And especially like as a woman, okay, you can do it by yourself. What's your problem? Like, why are you having such a hard time with it? You're conditioned not to ask for help. So even that, it's like that whole uncomfortable thing where like, I don't want to impose on I know the aunts and uncles, I know the grandparents, they want to babysit, they want to hang out with my children, they want to have that time. But like, I also know there are a lot of work, right. And so in my mind, the instinct that's that's forefront of the brain is I'm imposing by asking for help when in reality, that's what everybody wants, like everybody wants to be able to spend more time with the kids and to have them on their own, right, to kind of develop a relationship uh, on their own. Uh, a friend of ours was talking about how his fondest memories of his grandfather were like doing things with them and like talking about his grandfather's life. It wasn't any of the stuff that his grandfather bought him at any point during his life. It was like, oh, he had this really cool story because he only had like, like three fingers or something, right? Like it, it's that kind of stuff, right? It's, it's forming the bond, forming the relationship. That's what you're carrying. That's what stands out in your memory. And even for me, right? That's what stands out in my memory. I don't remember a single thing my grandparents have bought me in the course of my life but I remember the times that I spent with them. And I think getting around that kind of mental block as the parent and being like, you know, I need help or I actually, I want to invite you in. Like I want to invite you in to, to be a part of my child's life in, in a more profound and engaged way than we've seen in a couple of generations, certainly in like Western society. Uh, I think that's a big adjustment. And I, I you know, I, I certainly hope my kids, if they have kids, they're a little bit better at it than even I was. And my mom has told me that I am better at it than she was, right? Like she never took her mother's help. She loved her mother, never took her help. And, you know, as a result, like my relationship with my grandparents on that side were a little bit more distant, right? Because that was just how I was raised. Uh, and I don't want that for my kids. I would like them to be close with all their aunts and uncles and, and grandparents and anyways, that was a long tangent, but yeah. So instead they're trying to be like, I'm going to buy you stuff because that shows you I love you, right? Well, and um, I know that the we want to move on to the next thing that you find difficult. But, but, but just before we do, I want to admit that even I, like, have trouble not just buying presents for cute kids. And I don't even, like, I have a stepsister who has two kids, but I don't really see them. So my most recent experience is with uh, my ex who's family has like nine kids between them because he has like a bunch of brothers and sisters. And like, even when I'm just having Christmas and there's nine kids there, I'm like, damn, I really want to spoil these kids. They're so cute. And I really like them. And I'm not even in this family. <laughs> but like, my favorite thing to do is to hang out with them. Like when we take one of the kids on a car trip and we go have lunch with them or something, like, 
So even I, as a person who's like very, a very conscious consumer, still struggles with the, oh, I really want to get them. And I mean, I because I'm very conscious, I try to get them stuff that like rules, like stuff that's very useful, stuff that's not just going to like annoy the parents or be thrown away in a couple of like weeks. But still, right? Like I shouldn't be doing that at all. <laughs> but it's like, if you're not, then you're the one who didn't get them a present. <laughs> in the sea of everybody else who's getting them stuff, right? Like that's the note I sent to the both sides of the family. I was like, I can tell you, they are just happy to be there, right? And whether they're opening 17 gifts or they get a single unwrapped book, they're just happy to be the center of attention and to like have everybody like wanting to hang out with them and do all the things with them. Like I think that's that's a difficult, especially when you're separated from it. Certainly I felt the same way before I had kids. Is like, you know, you think, okay, well, this is, I have to get their attention. I have to buy them something. No, they, they really just want to hang out with you. Uh, did you ever see, did you guys watch Ted Lasso? Yeah. I did not, but Kristen has told me to. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's so good. You should. It, it's like chicken soup for the, for the brain. It's so nice. So comforting. There's a, there's a scene in the second season. There's no spoilers in this at all, but there's like a really gruff character and he has an eight year old niece and he's walking down the street with a woman who's trying to rebuild a relationship with like a, a goddaughter or something. Right. And she's basically like, I don't understand like what the deal is. And his response is, they just want to hang out. And he like calls out to the niece, like, Hey, do you want to come to the podiatrist appointment tomorrow? And she's like, yeah, like she's so <laughs> excited about it. And he's like, see, they don't care. Like they don't care what you're doing. They don't care what you know, and I felt like that was such a, a, like a clarifying moment too, to me, because you're like, yeah, that's exactly it. They just want to be around the people who want to be around them, right? Like they don't care about all this stuff. They really don't. That's us. Like that's us putting that on them. That's really interesting. Yeah. I, I remember seeing that scene and wondering whether it was true. So <laughs> no, I know. Do you want to go to the car wash? Oh my gosh. Yes. Do you want to come to the grocery store? Yes. Like, Okay, great. I mean, to be fair, the car wash is fun. <laughs> the car wash is fun for adults. The last time I went through a car wash, I was delighted. I was like, oh, look at this this mastery of science that we have come up with in order to wash a car. <laughs> this is what people in the 50s thought the future was. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I wonder if we can maybe talk a little bit about like how you negotiate um, conflicting values or times where you've experienced conflicting values in your parenting and have had difficulty with it? Thinking of specific examples here is going to is going to be the issue. It definitely comes up. Like I would say it comes up almost daily, right? And I think the biggest one that comes up is is in the knowing what I want to do in my head and then actually like living it, being the lived example of it, right? I think there's two really good examples to use. One is like relationship with food and like developing a healthy like a healthy, healthy relationship with food, right? So I mean, I can only speak, again, to my own experiences. I grew up, you finished what was on your plate. And I have memories of my sister sitting at the table for out what felt like hours, maybe it wasn't actually hours, but it felt like forever that she was forced to sit there until she finished the last like four bites of whatever was on her plate. And again, that like classic trope of, oh, there's starving kids who would love this food. And like, how dare you waste it? You know, we'll give you dessert if, if you finish your food, but if you don't finish your food, you don't get dessert. Okay. Well, again, knowledge being what it is and like access to information being what it is. We understand now that that like really screws up a person's ability to like correctly listen to their body's cues. And like, if you listen to what your body is saying in terms of, okay, actually I'm done eating now, like I'm full, 
and my plate is not empty. Like that's something I still very much struggle with as an adult is like actually listening to, oh, do I like, am I just finishing this because it's here or you know, do I actually want to eat what's here? And it's really difficult to reconcile that with like that knowledge with the idea of food waste, you know, toddlers, uh, one of the best pieces of advice I got when I was really struggling with how much my older daughter was eating was toddler nutrition happens in a week. And what that means is essentially some days your kid is going to eat absolutely nothing. They're going to exist off of like air and like three sips of water. And that's totally okay because maybe the next day they eat a ton, right? You never know going into it though. And as the parent, you're responsible for serving. And, and for me, the voice and the red flags in my head is going waste, 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 waste. Like you're just throwing this food out. And like in many cases, like maybe as she gets older, it won't be as much of a problem, but like kids mash their food up and they're moving it around and basically it's not worth keeping. Like you can't keep it. They don't want to eat it now. They're not going to eat it now that it's been poked at and smeared everywhere. And like, I wouldn't want to eat it. So like, why would they want to eat it? So it's like reconciling what I know is the right thing to do, which is like, let there be food waste with like, also, I don't, you know, I want to teach you not to throw out food. Like I want to teach you to be, you know, be able to listen to your body enough to be able to say, this is the portion size that I need. And like, how do I do that when I myself don't know how to do that? Like I don't, I, I can admit that. And then the same thing with like, um, how, how to teach my kids to be like tolerant and open-minded and like to accept and, you know, acknowledge their privilege and not just not be shitty people to other human beings that we exist on this planet with, but also, especially because they're as of now female identifying, you need to be careful, right? Like I, I don't want to shame you into thinking nudity is bad, especially because you're four and two, right? Like that's your natural state of being 99% of the time. When we live in the tropics, like I also don't want to wear clothing. It's hot all the time, but like, also, I don't know, you know, the people like our neighbors are getting work done. There were a bunch of strange men on the roof the other day. And like, I don't want you to be afraid of strangers and to think that people are out to hurt you. But also, people are going to try and use your body against you. And people might take advantage of the fact that you are so like open and free and all that stuff. And like, I don't want some random, you know, straight probably it's not going to happen, but like maybe some guy has a cell phone and is taking pictures of my naked child and putting them on the internet. Like I, this is a legitimate concern. You know, how often it happens, I'm sure it is not happening that often. But again, so how do I balance the, I need you to be careful and like keep kind of nudity to yourself and like without shaming you into thinking that this is something that you, you know, have to be ashamed of, you have to hide, you know, I don't want you to be like, I want to be a sex positive parent, all this kind of stuff. And like, this is clearly something we're still struggling with. It was, it's this, the example with the work people was literally this week. Um, it's like, my instinct is to put your clothes on or like hide over there. Like, okay, well that's what she's, that's what's going to stand out in her memory was that mummy was like stressed and like made her move out of the room. It's not going to be the conversation we had 15 minutes later where I tried to explain in like a more calm environment. Like, you know, this is why we're doing this. Da, 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 da. So like day to day, that kind of stuff comes up a lot how do I put this in an age appropriate way without totally messing you up for the rest of your life? Like I want you to like eat your food and, and have a healthy relationship with food. And I want you to have a healthy relationship with your, your body and, and your, you know, self image and all this stuff. But also, you know, I want you to be careful and I want you to be cognizant of waste. And, you know, a lot of these things are almost contradictory 
kids haven't developed a strong sense of cognitive dissonance yet. And so it's a little <laughs> bit of a struggle. <laughs> uh, comes somewhere after object permanence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another, another conflicting value that I had sort of thought of, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on are um, like online surveillance and access to technology. I saw an article today that referred to like surveillance technology as parental panopticons, <laughs> which I thought was a, uh, was quite good. But it I mean, I think it is like one of those situations where you've got like, you know, the autonomy and like privacy of the child um, is sort of balanced against safety. So it, it doesn't seem obvious sort of like exactly where the line is. Uh, is that something that you've thought about? Or are they too young? I think about it all the time. No, no, it's like really. And, and it's funny, I listened to the podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish. And I was listening to an episode the other day, they had Malcolm Gladwell on and the and the fact that he presented was that there's no data on raising a child with a smartphone. And it's true because it's so new. We have absolutely no idea how this is like long term going to impact like human beings. Right. Um, and it's not just the like, OK, it's a screen, whatever. It's also like access to information and like teaching people like teaching kids how to be adults. Right. And the example that was given was you're sitting at a table, it's a group of eight-year-olds, and you say something offensive or inappropriate. Okay, well, what are the recourse to respond to that by your peers? Okay, they can yell at you, they might hit you, which of course might not be the correct solution, but there's there's a, an immediate and a visceral kind of reaction that teaches you, the person who's doing the insulting or offensive thing, that, hey, what I did was wrong. Whereas if you're doing that online, you insult someone online, where's the the reaction, like where's the, the, you don't have the equivalent online. And like, what's that going to mean in terms of, you know, frankly, raising ethical, like raising good humans, um, which I thought was a really interesting, something I hadn't thought of. So thank you for adding to my fear of the parental panopticon and raising my children with technology. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's true though. And, you, and it starts when they're babies because you have baby monitors that are cameras, right? We chose to go that route. And like now I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and like I, we've had the conversation several times, but four-year-old probably doesn't need the camera anymore. Like she can get out of bed and come and get us if she needs us. Like, so why do we still have a camera on our four-year-old while she sleeps? Right. Like, but it gives me comfort that I can see her like getting into the tech part. Like, oh my gosh, like I can't even imagine. And my partner is in like deep in the in the tech industry. That's his the business that he he works in. And, you know, I, I defer to him a lot on this kind of stuff. But, you know, I think it's even as the interaction with technology, right? Like both of them know how to use my phone. Both of them know how to use a touch screen. Both of them, you know, we're not quite at the point of putting on parental controls and stuff, but like it's going to be a legitimate thing. We have to do at some point in, in when they have access to tablets and stuff. And it's the balance between teaching them appropriate use of tools like because it is a tool you do need to know how to use it safely and and it's that classic if you keep your kids away from it they're going to want it more right with also you know protection and and making sure it's safe kind of circling back to the panopticon idea of it like we we both have social media accounts uh my social media is private my partner's social media is also private he almost never posts the children i usually do to our like close friends list right but it's been a real conversation again with grandparents who are, you know, that classic boomer generation that share everything online. Like everything's on Facebook to your 8,000 people and half of them are, you know, and it's having to have those gentle conversations with like grandparents and be like, 
you say you know everybody on your friends list, but like you haven't seen some of these people since the third grade. Like you, you don't know these people. You don't know who they are. And I, ha- as a parent, I have to assume the worst, right? That sounds terrible, but like for their safety, like I don't want, you know, I don't want pictures of her in her school uniform up there. Like I don't want people that I don't know knowing where she goes to school. You know, I'm happy for you to take, if, if it's people that you talk to every single day, it's, you know, actual friends, like, sure, take the pictures that I send and show them, like physically show them or send them in a text message. That is also fine. But there's no reason to post, you know, 8,000 pictures every time the family gets together. And again, it's that classic, like, learn by doing thing where even with grandparents, we've had to kind of say, you know, like, I've toned back on how much I post of my children online because I, I want to lead, lead by example and show that hey, it's not just you, right? Like she, they have no concept of their image being online forever. They have no, they couldn't possibly comprehend what this could mean long-term and they cannot legitimately give consent. So how is it fair for me to, you know, I, as their parent have to make that decision for them. And, and again, no shade to anybody who does this. Lots of people show to choose to share their children online all the time. And, that's, I think, a very personal choice that you have to make as a parent. For our, from our end, my concerns over safety, my concerns over, uh, you know, my children not hating me when they turn 12, 13 years old and are like, oh, my God, I can't believe you put, you know, me in the bath like 17 times. Well, and it's, it's not just that. It's that um, photos of children get taken to the dark web and used for horrible, horrible things all the time. And that's not a thing that, like, that's not a thing that I have personally experienced because I don't hang out in those places. But it is something that is, it, it's real, it exists. And I think it's something that boomer parents especially cannot comprehend because to them, the internet is Facebook. And nothing like that appears in their Facebook feeds. It does appear on Facebook, but not in the circles that they engage with. And so it's hard for them to imagine like, well, you're just being paranoid, nothing like that. But it's like, no, thousands, millions of pictures like that do exist of people's children that have been posted by their grandparents. So stop it. (laughs) Absolutely. And And I mean, like taking the tech side a little bit further, the idea of like surveillance a bit further, like my partner turned to me and, you know, he says it jokingly, but I'm pretty sure he's half joking, but he's the one who was like, you know, we should chip our children, right? Like, cause then you always know where they are, right? <laughs> like you would chip a cat or you chip a dog, right? You put a, you put a chip at them and then they can't go missing, right? And you think of, and, and the things you think of as they get older, right? Like the, like having a conversation, we're trying to have a conversation now, but like, what do you do if you get lost? Like if you get separated from your parent, Right. And the idea, again, we grew up with stranger danger, right? Well, okay, we now know that's not really a super dangerous thing for kids. Now it's more usually someone you know or someone who is a trusted figure that you need to be careful of. So now the the teaching or the new instruction is tricky grownups. So how to identify a tricky grownup? And it's like, again, so how do you incorporate these conversations, A, without scaring the shit out of your kids, right? Uh, And B while also kind of letting them live and learn, right? Like you, there's something to be said about that, that like free roam parenting. I know we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but like the, the idea of like letting them explore their environment on their own, learn the bounds of their own physical capabilities, you know, test their environment. Like that is an, that, like, it's an important thing. And like, yes, I want my kids to be safe. Yes. I, I want to know where they are, but also she needs to know that she can trust her own judgment and her own instincts, right? And like, how do we balance that with, with safety and, and coming here, like coming to Costa Rica, we're, 
we don't speak Spanish. She doesn't speak Spanish. Like I'm just learning. Like I was petrified when I first sent her to school because I was like, what is she going to do if she ends up in a situation where God forbid, like, you know, she doesn't have a trusted adult around for whatever reason. And she can't like, she can't speak the language. She doesn't know the phone numbers. Like she has no concept of like even how to use a, you know, a pay phone if one even exists anymore, but you know, and, and kind of overcoming that. And it, it's almost like you have to take it step by step. I would say as a parent, like you can't make one, I can't look at it and say, this is my answer for everything. It has to be case by case. It has to be, you know, this is my comfort level. This is what I can do now being aware of the fact that for her to grow, for her to learn, I have to accept some risk. Right. And I can't like the cliche, like I can't protect them from everything. Like I just, I can't, I'm not going to be able to, and they need to know how to take care of themselves. That's the ultimate goal. So how do I balance those two things? And gosh, I'm not even thinking about cell phones, but like when it comes up, like, what is that going to mean? You know, there's this whole new trend of giving kids dumb phones, like the classic flip phones, like that really appeals to me right now. Like, Okay, great, because now you don't have the internet. You don't have all these, like, social media. They've just got, like, that snake game. <laughs> Something I've been thinking about on that is also, like, aren't aren't you stunting them then if all of their peers are capable of using this tool that I, as an adult, rely on daily, like, to, to help navigate my life, and that's the way that we're kind of going. Like, it, um, cell phones are very interesting because it's almost like it's almost like a second brain and it's all it's almost like a superpower in when you're using it right you know and so it's really interesting to me when parents choose not to give their kids phones at all or to not teach them how to code or anything because it feels almost like I don't know if you guys ever saw Gattaca but but it all it all it feels like well in Gattaca Kristen um Basically, people are like genetically modified and some people choose not to genetically modify their children. But then those kids are kind of delegated to like a second class life because they don't have the same abilities as their peers. And so they just can't perform as well. And so like speaking as a person who is 100 percent not a parent. That is the thinking that I've kind of come across. I love parenting stuff. I should like preface this. I've read so much about parenting and I love hanging out on gentle parenting TikTok. I don't know why. It's fascinating. It's a topic I love. But that's what I think about when I think about like not giving a kid a cell phone. It's like what what are they – it's almost like learning a language when you're a kid. You can you can learn eas- like easier and you're going to know it better and more fully as an adult. And that's kind of what tech is now. That's true, though. But like, on the other hand of that, um, like, there's some evidence showing that, like, being online, especially like with social media and things like that can impact memory development. So it's like not necessarily going in one direction. Yeah, but like, do you need to have a good memory anymore? If you have a tool that remembers everything for you? Like, that's just not a skill we even need anymore. It's kind of like, I think of it like a like a hunter gatherer thing. Like, I don't need to know how to gather berries. That's not a thing that I employ in my life anymore. Yeah, but what happens if the like memory on your phone, like, what happens if you don't have internet access one day, Kyla? Like, how are you gonna find your way around? Then I'm (laughs) fucked. So then the question is, like, how worried are we that the climate catastrophe that we are in the beginnings of experiencing is going to just take our entire network and way of life offline? And then I'll be completely stunted. <laughs> well, that is a, maybe a very depressing rabbit hole. Too. <laughs> right, I was just going to say, like, I, I, th- I agree. And I think that the takeaway for me, like, in terms of that is concerned, is what my mantra to life is, which is everything in moderation. 
and like including including moderation, uh, but everything in moderation, right? I think you know my instinct is like no screens, no no tech, whatever. But of course you need it. Like of course it's already I'm already at a disadvantage in the workforce because my background in tech isn't super strong, right? I you know I need them to know and like certainly their father being who he is, he will teach them, right? And he's learning and. And I think the good example is I grew up, you know, TVs are the devil. I was never allowed to watch TV. I wasn't allowed to have video games. I wasn't allowed to do any of that stuff. And the refrain that my mom always said was, they'll rot your brain, right? Okay, yes. If you're, as with anything, if you're watching nothing but TV all day and like certainly type of content matters as well, it will absolutely rot your brain. (laughs) However, if you do the complete- Don't judge my weekend, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) It's my weekend too. (laughs) But if you go on the other side of things too, right? Like you need to know what's out there, right? You're at a disadvantage socially if you don't know, you know, what is everybody watching? Like, what is everybody playing? What is everybody doing? Like there's there's something to be said for striking a balance. And I think like trying to toe that midline is the, it's a constant balancing act, right? You're, you're And as I said, it's going to be case by case. You got to kind of deal with situations as they come up. Well, and I think giving a hard time to anything is really unfair because if you watch a lot of TV, maybe when you're older, your passion is making TV shows, right? But if that, if that's something that you would be so well designed for, but you never got to like grow up with that, then you're at a disadvantage as well, right? It's that idea of rich people's kids get more, get further in the society that we've developed because they have more access to the things that they're interested in. And when we take that away from kids, especially like, oh, you're interested in this, but I'm not going to let you participate, then what's that teaching them, right? Oh, the things I value are not valuable. Wonder if we can maybe switch to what I sort of see as another potential trickiness around teaching kids um, values. Um, which is how you sort of approach conversations around injustices or parts of the world that are bad. Um, is that something that you've come up against as a parent? Absolutely. And it's, I would say it's like the one area where there's been, I don't want to say conflict, but a source of discussion with myself and my partner, which is how to broach topics, difficult topics in an age appropriate fashion. And like the example that springs to mind that happened most recently was the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. So September 30th, where in Costa Rica, they don't obviously acknowledge that. But and my daughter wears a uniform to school. But, you know, I put orange ribbon in her hair and we had a conversation about, you know, I had done research beforehand. I'd looked it up like here, preschool appropriate ways to like talk about what happened. And she's got books, you know, we've got books by Indigenous authors that kind of talk a little bit about residential schools um, and they are like, even at the preschool age, I would say like, I can understand they're, they're scary topics, right? Like the books talk about children being taken from their families and they talk about, you know, some children got sick and, and didn't go home again. Right. And like, you know, that's, that's a scary thing. That's a scary thing. Not as a four-year-old, I can only imagine as a four-year-old. Right. But I think it's an important thing to discuss. And I hearken back to something I think my mother did really well, which was when I was younger, we used to go to the take back the night services, like marches. And I remember, I vividly remember my mother saying, and like, yeah, I'm sure she was in a moment of heightened emotion. And I must have been like four or five, but basically being like, never forget that as a woman in this world, you are always going to be at a disadvantage and you are going to have to work that much harder. And you're going to have to prove yourself over and over and over again. And she wasn't saying it to scare me and she wasn't saying it to be mean. She was saying, this is the reality of the world that you live in. 
you're going to have to choose to adapt to that. And I think that when you get into difficult conversations, whether it's, you know, the way the country that you're from, Canada in this case, has treated its Indigenous people. uh, And I'll even rephrase that because I know that that's not I'm learning still too, right? Like I know you don't want to say Canada's indigenous people, the indigenous people that existed on Turtle Island before settlers arrived, before people that looked like you and I, just speaking to my daughter, arrived, you know, and then also the whole Black Lives Matter movement that kind of exploded as she was turning two and I'm stuck at home, it's a pandemic. And like, I'm really kind of being forced to reckon with my own biases, my own experiences, while also trying to teach this to my kids in an age appropriate way. And like, and I think, you know, these kinds of difficult topics, whether it's Indigenous reconciliation, whether it's grappling with like race privilege, um, socioeconomic privilege, uh, climate privilege, frankly, I think in, in this case, we're so lucky that we have access or I'm so lucky as a parent that I have access to the Internet, which can be such a double edged sword as with anything. But in this particular context, I don't have to do the like hard neuroscience child psychology work because chances are somebody out there has already done it and you know there's a 10 uh, 10 picture instagram slide deck that says here's how to raise these topics in an age-appropriate way you know from two to four this is how you talk about it from five to ten this is how you, you know and that kind of thing and i think i think that's my that's my work as, as the parent is to make sure that I'm doing the research and I'm looking into that kind of, kind of stuff. And I feel very strongly as it stands right now that I shouldn't, it is not my job as a parent to shy away from difficult topics. It is my job to provide a safe environment in which to discuss it. And it is my job to teach them, you know, no, that classic, no, no such thing as a stupid question. Like you can always feel comfortable talking to me about anything and I will never hold it against you. Uh, my main question or request or goal is that they know they have a safe place to come and discuss that with me. And, and I am willing to acknowledge and accept when I don't have the answer or when the answer is imperfect or when it's a difficult thing. And I think as with everything parenting, once you, once you get the hang of a particular age or phase, then suddenly everything changes and you're like, Oh, I'm starting this conversation from scratch. So I'm sure the the conversation about, certainly about Indigenous reconciliation, it's going to continue to come up. It's something I feel very strongly about learning about myself. And, you know, the the gender thing is going to come up or the is going to come up for sure, uh, because it's something I was really raised with. And it's something that I'm experiencing in real time as a mother in particular, a mother in 2022, who's supposed to have all these equalities and, and supports. And in many ways, I do certainly better than than people have historically. But, you know, I, I think it's a disservice to my children to not show them as well that there are still a lot, there's, we still have a long way to go. I say that in the context of, of someone who's living a very real uh, challenge right now of like trying to find a job after four years of having not worked outside the home. And like in this day and age, it is still, you know, employers are still not keen to hire somebody who's been out being a mom. Right. And who whose priorities clearly lie with being available to their children. I don't obviously not all employers, but I think it's still very few and far between where you get companies that are willing to support parents being parents. And I think it as with more difficult topics like climate justice, you know, indigenous rights, uh, racial privilege. I could continue to list. There's so many, you know, it doesn't do my kids any 
it doesn't benefit them in any way to shy away from topics just because they're hard. Again, they're going to have to experience it. They're going to live it in their lives. And I think it in the long run, I, again, personal belief, I have no science to back me up on this, but I think being able to raise them in such a way that they're not going to turn into adults who are faced with the shock of being like, oh my God, I'm such a privileged person. Like if they can be raised with understanding their privilege and using it to help people who maybe don't have as much privilege as, as they do, to, you know, to amplify voices that are traditionally not heard as much, then they're not having to spend as much time doing the like backwards work and the breaking the cycle work. And they can just kind of work on moving forward. You know, who knows, 10 years from now, the science may come out that this is totally the wrong way to do things, right? <laughs> but for now, you have to work with with the best available science, the best available information. And, and right now, that's this is how I feel confident broaching these topics in age-appropriate ways and not shying away from things just because they're hard, uh, because this is something that they're going to face in their life. You know, the climate crisis isn't going to go away. Indigenous people haven't been completely reconciled and, you know, colonialism isn't over. Like, that's just not how... Yeah, we didn't wear an orange t-shirt and fix it all, <laughs> sadly. It's exactly it. When the three of us were kids, we definitely did learn that colonialism was over. Like, I learned that, <laughs> like, growing up in the 90s was wild because everything I was taught was like, well, history is over. We're in the modern era. Nothing historical will ever happen again. We're at the forefront of history and everything is peachy keen and has been, all loose ends have been tied up. And you're like, yeah, let's just ignore the genocide that's happening over here and over there. Everything's fine. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like, don't look at the man behind the curtain, right? Like, <laughs> although I also feel like I I was very – I was given a lot of very straight talk when I was a kid. And I guess my question I, – I know that we have other stuff to move on with. But it's like, what happens if you talk to a kid in a not appropriate age-appropriate way and, you, <laughs> and you're like, this is how I would talk to an adult about residential schools – what what sort of damage would that do to a four year old? Like what 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 are the consequences of explaining exactly what like what like priests are and what they are supposed to be doing and what they were actually doing to people that were like your daughter's age? Like like what what would happen to that child? I mean, I think it would depend on like how consistent that kind of messaging is, right? Like I I can tell you from personal experience when I've slipped up or you know she's overheard something or whatever. It takes a lot of like talking it through. There are things like nightmares that come up and like fears, like like genuine, legitimate fears that that they develop uh, about stuff. So I certainly think it would be, you know, like I don't want her to be afraid of the world either. I, I always say her, I'm, I'm speaking about my elder daughter and I feel bad because my poor baby, but like she is such a baby in my mind still. So like obviously everything I'm saying applies to both of my children. <laughs> it's just that the 19 month old is still in the cute, adorable cuddle phase. And, you know, my four year old, I'm like actually grappling with like real things and like a very less, less high stakes example is like uh, my partner was telling me he was talking to Maddie, our eldest the other day about learning Spanish. And he was like, well, you should try and like, you know, speak to your classmates in Spanish and learn a little bit more Spanish. And her response was, well, I don't have to because they're learning English. Right. And like, <laughs> that is true because they go to a school where they try and most of the kids are coming from Spanish speaking homes and they're being sent to the school to learn English. Right. There is still Spanish in the curriculum or whatever, but there's so little that that's, 
But it's like, again, you know, you, these things come up where she says something and you're like, oh, I feel like this is a teachable moment. And like, how do I get into it? Or like a big thing lately has been, you know, she's like, is that is so-and-so a boy or a girl? And so my response is always, well, you can ask. And then like the reminder that, you know, maybe they're neither, right? Like they, like they don't have to be a boy or a girl. Like that's not really an important part of who they are, right? And she's got it really stuck in her head that like, no, 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 they have to. Or she'll say, oh, that toy is for boys or that's for girls, right? Like you see the, the stuff coming up already where you're, you're kind of having to say, well, wait a second, <laughs> hold on here. This is the antithesis of what I'm trying to teach you. And that's, again, kind of circling back to the first thing we talked about, like what's the biggest impediment to raising a, you know, an ethical child or, or trying to raise a good person, be an ethical parent, it's other people, right? You can have the best of intentions and you could do everything the way you're quote unquote supposed to, you know, you can have all the books and you can have all the, you know, gentle parenting conversations, but at the end of the day, your kid is going out there and they are interacting with other people and they are seeing messages, whether it's media or, you know, bus ads, or even just the way a store is laid out, right? By color or by, by gender. And they're internalizing that, right? And so you're, you might do all the upfront work and you're still taking one, two steps back every now and then and having to constantly have these conversations over and over. And even when it's the hard stuff, you're still having to, you know, I can't just talk about, (laughs) and it's the classic thing for adults too, right? Like, yeah, you can't wear an orange shirt on September 30th and everything's soft, right? You can't just talk about truth and reconciliation on a single day and expect to actually internalize any of the lessons. It has to be something that's kind of incorporated almost daily, like almost have a, have a conversation every day. It doesn't have to be a direct conversation, but like, how do you incorporate like biases, privilege, uh, responsibility to your fellow human beings into your day-to-day interactions with your children, into your day-to-day, um, you know, parenting strategy? Well, and I think a really interesting part of that as well is like when I was a kid, I used to think like, oh, I don't need to take in any of this information because when I'm adult, an adult, that's so far away from now that all of these problems will be solved. Like, I, I specifically remember a climate scientist came to our school and gave an assembly about climate change. One would have thought, Kyla. One would have thought. <laughs> and, and I remember thinking, he's like, oh, by the time you guys are in your 30s, you're going to be experiencing, like, floods and storms that, like, humans have never experienced before. And I remember thinking, well, damn, I'm 10. So by the time I'm in my 30s, like, we already, like, this guy's coming and telling us about it. So people know. So everybody knows. And he says that there's ways to fix it. And I can't do any of that. So why bother caring about it because it should be fixed by the time I'm I'm an adult. So it's like also trying to teach them that like other people are useless. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you're not wrong. You're, you're not wrong. But like, also like, you know, you want them to be kids too. And that's always the, you know, I don't want her to grow up too fast. I don't want her to be afraid of the world or I don't want them to grow up too fast. I don't want them to be afraid of the world, but like. They don't need to be Greta Thunberg, you know? (laughs) So it's, it's balancing like, you should have a childhood, but also, like, you, you got to recognize that this stuff's not going to be fixed by the time you're 25, 30. Exactly. And, like, we have a, an obligation to, like, work towards a collective resolution, right? Even if 
the people that you're working with on the collective resolution, if you, even if you've got some degenerate team members on this who aren't willing to help as much. Uh, Everybody's been in that kind of group project sometime. <laughs> and those people don't just stop existing after you're done your group project. They go out and live in our society. <laughs> it's true. And I mean, we've all been that person too. It's not to point fingers. Like I have definitely taken on less work. You know, it's a, it ebbs and flows. Absolutely. On the other side of it, like you're working really hard as a parent to do the best you can. um, But on the other side, you're sort of confronted with shame and judgment externally. Um, Is that something you've experienced? um, And if so, sort of in what ways? Oh, yes, constantly. Like you get you have the internalized side of it where like, again, it's that double edged sword of the Internet and social media where you're just bombarded with imagery of the perfect mother, the perfect parent, the perfect family. Uh, and you're bombarded with messaging of, you know, if you're not doing things X way, you are failing and your child will be fundamentally, you know, psychologically damaged for the rest of your life. Right. Like I a uh, perfect example being I really struggle with I grew up in a household where there was a lot of yelling. I love my parents. I love my mother in particular. She is a vocal person, right? I yelled a lot growing up. Before we had kids, my partner and I were like, no, we don't want to be a yelling household. Well, okay. you Saying it doesn't make it be, right? I lose my temper. I shout at my children. I immediately feel guilty about that, right? And, and the longest time the messaging I was getting was even if you've just done this once or twice, even though you're trying your best every single time that you fail, every single time that you shout at your child because you get frustrated, you are psychologically damaging them and they will never recover, right? Like that is the messaging, right? And it, you internalize that. Even if your brain knows better, you internalize that. So I think that's the one side is like the internet and random strangers who aren't intending to judge you and make you feel guilty by the nature of the internet being what it is and being so immersed in like mom culture now, parent culture now, uh, I feel guilty. I'm like, Oh, I never even thought of that. And like, I've been doing it X way all these years and like, Oh, if I ruined her forever, like, but then there's the other side where it's, I think generational. And now again, I I'm kind of being forced to think about things where like, you know, you get that refrain from grandparents uh, in particular grandparents generation where it's like, well, well, we didn't have that and you guys turned out just fine about, you know, a gadget or a course or a way of doing things, whatever it happens to be. And now I can kind of see having having done this for a few years, okay, they're defensive, right? Because they feel like what I'm saying is in some way shaming them. I'm choosing to raise my children in a slightly different way or use different tools than you used when you were raising me or you were raising whoever, right? And it's that idea that because the way you're doing something is different than somebody else's, that it's inherently better. And it's trying to wrap your head around the idea that that's not the case. So like, I always try and, you know, I'm, I'm a verbose person. I use way too many words when I don't need to as a rule. It, it comes up when I'm like dealing with other parents, especially people who are becoming new parents for the first time is I always throw in the caveats that like, Hey, this is what worked for me, right? Like this is, and, and you have to find the thing that's going to work for you. And the best piece of advice I can think to give a person who's becoming a parent for the first time is like, as terrible as it sounds, you need to grow a thick skin because otherwise you're going to feel upset and guilty and worried the whole time. And that's, uh, you're already like sleep deprived and and physically you're already at capacity. So like 
adding in mental anguish on top of all the other major life changes that are happening, the more you can minimize that external pressure, the better off you're going to be. Well, and also when you're getting a refrain from your parents that are like, well, I didn't do this and you turned out fine. It's pretty easy to go, "Mm, did I? (laughs) You're like, actually, I've chosen to do this because of that experience. And I'm not, and it's not to shame you. You were young. You didn't know. Like you didn't have the internet. I have the internet. Like, of course, I'm going to raise my kids differently than you raised me. I'm a mess. (laughs) Actually, I'm a disaster. I'm barely holding things together. So, you know. No, but I mean, you're absolutely right about that. And and it's, and that's it. It's almost like having to say to them, I'm not saying that you were wrong. Like, I'm not saying you should go back in time and feel retroactively guilty about this thing you did 30 years ago. Like, don't, it's done. It's fine. Now we know better, right? It's like seatbelts. It's like car seats. Okay, well, now we understand better how to keep children safe in vehicles. And that's why, yeah, the car seats look different. And they're, you know, haha, so funny. But like, there's a reason why this kind of stuff exists. And, and, you know, going back to the capitalism is evil of it all. Like there, there are kid and baby products, tons of them that are bullshit and that are not offering any value to anything. Like they have the best example I can think of is they have these like little pillows with like holes in them, like donut pillows. First of all, babies aren't supposed to have pillows, but the idea is that it keeps your kid's head from, from becoming misshapen because you have to put your, like, the science is that you put your kid to your baby to sleep on their back and that ha- it helps reduce incidences of, of SIDS. Okay. Well, they sell these stupid pillows to keep your baby's head from becoming misshapen. Okay. First of all, no pillows in the crib. Second, not really a thing. Baby's heads are like very soft and like, you know, yes, there are cases where you're going to need to correct skull shape and stuff like that. But like, again, it's, it's capitalism markets, a whole bunch of bullshit products. And as the parent, the new parent, you have to parse through, okay, what is a legitimate thing that is a safety thing that I need or that I could use to help augment creating a safe environment to raise my children versus what is something that it just exists for no, you know, for aesthetic purposes or, or for the sake of selling more stuff, right? Well, in the world that we grew up in is so different than the world that you know, your kids, our kids are going to be raised in, which is a world that is so different than the world that our parents were raised in. And that's something that like, like almost never in human history has that been an issue, right? Like, normally, the world you grow up in is the same world that your parents grew up in is the same world that your kids are going to grow up in. But because of the rate of technological medical advancement, like, that's just not the case anymore. Like the and globalization, my God! Like <laughs> we're in a much bigger village now than we are supposed to be in. No, you're absolutely right about that too. And I think so. Going back, like going back to the guilt question too. Like it's also come up inadvertently among like friends who are who are parents, right? Like I remember distinctly when my daughter was first born, and I, you know, I had very my eldest daughter was first born. I had very clear ideas in my head about what I wanted to do. I'm like, you know, the classic shaming example that you see a lot is the breastfeeding versus formula fed. And like, I totally bought into that. I wanted to breastfeed. I wanted to breastfeed. I, I, I breastfed, I'm still breastfeeding my younger child, but I, I knew it was something I wanted to do. But in hindsight, how much of that was the messaging that I was getting, which was that if you truly loved your child, you would do the best thing for them. And the best thing for them is to breastfeed. Okay. 
I've had two children now. I've had the benefit of a little bit of experience. I really struggled with breastfeeding with my first. And I, if I had, we discussed it. And if I had the same level of struggles with my second child that I'd had with my first, I would have switched to a bottle. I would have switched to formula. Like we have this technology. There is absolutely no reason we should be shaming people for the way they choose to feed their children. Right. And it doesn't even have to be whether you can or whether breastfeeding is easy. It can just be that, hey, I don't like it or I don't want to. It wigs me up. That is a legitimate reason not to breastfeed your child. But that is not what the messaging is that is out there. That is not the messaging that exists. And on the inverse side of things, like, you know, I I speak candidly about it. It's still something that makes me feel like nervous and sweaty when I say it out loud. Like I am breastfeeding my 20 month old daughter. She is almost two. And yes, the World Health Organization, the American Pediatric Society, the Canadian Pediatric Society, they all say, yes, you should breastfeed your child for up to two years and, and beyond, right? There are, you know, there's no reason not to, right? Even if the benefit is just a, a social bonding type thing, right? But there's shame around that too, right? My mother, inadvertently, my mother who was the hippie, crunchy granola mom who breastfed both of her children, the other day we're on a, on a call and, and my youngest daughter was asking for, for milk. And, oh, no, you don't still want that, do you? You're too old for that. Like, don't say that to my kid, right? Like, I know you're, you're really well-intentioned here and, like, you're not, you're not in any way trying to be, you know, and mom, if you're listening to this, I am not judging you at all, but it. I know you're not, I know you're not trying to be intentional with this, but that's like the, you, you internalize that kind of messaging. Right. And like one thing that I've really struggled with becoming a parent is letting go of the relationship with my own parents. Right. You spend so long deferring to your parents as the ultimate authority that it becomes difficult. Like you really do when they say something, you're like, wait a second, like all this research I've done, these like feelings, these values that I have deep in my core that I want to impart on my kids. And and in two words, you're making me like second guess my choices because I'm so used to deferring to you as the ultimate authority that even though I'm an adult in every sense of the word, like I have to kind of struggle with that internally and say, no, I, I am making the right decision for my child, for my relationship with my child. And this just is what works for me, right? I think that that comes up a lot. And because I nursed both my kids, I remember a a girlfriend of mine who has kids slightly older than mine had said, she had said it in a kind of, you know, joking way. She's like, oh, well, she's very attached to you. Maddie is very attached to you. This is my eldest daughter. But she said it in such a way that in my brain, I'm going, is she too attached? Like, have I done something wrong? Like, are we weirdly connected here? Um, And certainly as a first time parent, especially that kind of guilt and second guessing comes up all the time where you're well at least it did for me where you're like wait a second like have I have I gone too far in the opposite direction like is my bond too close okay well now again I'm an quote-unquote experienced parent I am not worried about that I am not she is a perfectly well-adjusted child perfectly capable a wonder to be around you know great in the classroom like there was no issue Um, but again same thing now I'm kind of going through the same sort of experience with my my younger daughter in the sense that we're like prepping her to start going to daycare. She's going to daycare much older than many kids go to daycare because I haven't been working outside of the home. And um, same thing. She's very attached, but I'm not as worried. Like with Maddie, I was like, Oh no, have I ruined her? Like, is this going to be a horrible transition? That's going to be psychologically scarring. You know, that's what the messaging that I was absorbing was kind of telling me, okay, I'm more confident the second time around. I know it's going to be fine. Like, yes, we had, we had a babysitter last night. 
I could tell she was worried. Both the kids were a little bit worried. It was a new babysitter, but like, they're going to be fine. Right. Yes. I kind of coddled them a little and I, you know, sat with them a little bit extra longer to kind of go over it again. But like, ultimately what I'm trying to do is build a trusting enough relationship that they, they trust me. Right. And they trust me, whether that's, I'm leaving them with like a stranger, like, you know, an adult, another adult that can take care of them, or I'm trusting that the the food that I choose to feed them is the right food or that the clothes that I choose to buy them are the right clothes, right? That's the trying to like trust myself as a parent and not feel too guilty and, and, and be confident in my own abilities, I think is a, a huge learning curve when you're becoming a parent, certainly for the first time. Well, and being conscious about the decisions that you're making and why you're making them makes it easier for you to explain to your kid, right? Like my parents were so young when they had me that I, they were just, they were flying by the seat of their pants and they didn't have internet to help them out, right? So of course, a lot of the things they were doing, they were like, well, I can't explain this. So I'm just going to say, because I said so, right? And I think that's true for a, a lot of our, our parents of our generation is like, well, I don't know. And I don't want to have to explain because that would take too much internal thinking. And I'm so young that it's difficult. And you're already a child that's difficult to raise. So it's just easier if you just, just do as I say. <laughs> Exactly. Just listen. <laughs> um, let's maybe uh, turn to the topic of stuff. Um, so we've already talked a little bit about gifts and how predatory marketing can be for new parents. On the other side of waste, um, there's like a lot of stuff that you need when you're a new parent. And uh, a lot of that stuff has to sort of get disposed of at some point because kids change, they grow out of things. So I'm wondering, Sarah, if you could talk about some of the biggest sources of waste as a parent and how you've navigated that in trying to sort of be environmentally conscious. I think the two things that really stand out for, for me, again, in my personal experience, because we didn't do bottles, we didn't do formula, is diapers and clothing. Babies don't really need clothes, except that we live in Canada, so they kind of do need clothes sometimes, or we did when they were babies. Uh, you know, they do need clothes, right? They they need warm gear and layers and blah, 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 blah. blah. They don't need shoes. That's my stand. <laughs> no, they don't need shoes. Oh, my gosh. And they're so cute. But, like, why would you? The first thing my mom ever got for me when I was pregnant with Maddie was a tiny pair of Toms. And they're the most adorable shoes in the world. But, like, like why? Why <laughs> she never she's they're so small they're for newborn babies right newborn babies are never going to use shoes but anyways um clothes for sure and then diapers and diapers was like a really really weird moral dilemma I had when I was pregnant because I was I know I was cloth diapered it's a source of pride for my mother uh my sister was as well and so I knew initially I was like I really want a cloth diaper also at that time we lived in like a 600 square foot condo like do I really want to be doing 875 loads of laundry every single day and like how much waste and how much energy do the laundry machines use because you're wiping you're cleaning like poo and pee right like you got to wash in hot water you got to use all the like hardcore detergents so I knew that if I was going to cloth diaper I wasn't gonna you could do a service right like a delivery service okay so I must have done hours of research on this and like the only conclusion I could draw was that it basically comes out unless you're cleaning your own diapers it's the energy expenditure is almost the same because you got to put you're looking at transportation of because they have delivery services now basically that will drop off clean diapers every week and pick up the old diapers and then wash them right and they recycle them through now of course you're recycling them and you can use but there's a huge buy sell community online that does the covers, like the really cute covers. So you can get secondhand covers because they're quite expensive. We ultimately couldn't do it because I had to make an 
it, at the time, agonizing decision. In hindsight, it wasn't that big a deal. I knew I wasn't going to wash them myself and our condo wouldn't accept like the delivery, which I, I, you know, I can kind of get, like, I guess they didn't want a giant bag of dirty diapers sitting at the front. That's, I, I guess that's fine. <laughs> but it's been something that like, it like niggles still to this day, like gets at my brain a little bit that like, you know, we use, we use disposable diapers and I've been blessed with two children. Well, one child so far, but the other one seems to be trending in that direction as well, that uh, they seem to want to potty train really early. So one thing that I found really interesting in my diaper research, this is a total sidebar, is that kids in general used to uh, potty train much earlier with cloth diapers because you could you felt the sensation. Whereas the moisture wicking technology these days is so good that like kids just don't, they're not uncomfortable, right? So you don't, there's no push physical, there's no physical incentive to, to stop using a diaper, right? I was lucky my eldest potty trained basically like in a single day at the age of two without a problem, which is quite unusual from the stuff that I've read. And again, my other daughter seems to be trending in that direction. But anyways, diapers are huge waste. Wipes, also a huge waste. So I found out city of Toronto where we lived before, you can green bin your diapers, but you cannot green bin your wipes. So then if you're green binning your diapers, you have to, the way you would change a diaper, just, you know, for those who know, is typically you take the wipes that you've used, you put them in the diaper, you roll up the diaper, you dispose of the diaper. Okay, well, if you're going to effectively green bin your diapers, you can't do that. You got to find a separate way to dispose of the wipes. Unless, again, you're using cloths, in which case you got to wash them and you have to have enough on hand that um, you're not constantly doing laundry and running around like a chicken with your head cut off. Clothes is the other thing. Babies grow fast. You go through, I would say, one, two, three, four, five. You go through five sizes in the first year of life. And then usually two the year after, just the way conventional clothing is sized. Now, there is a big movement towards like grow with me clothing, which is basically cuffed clothing, like clothes where you like roll up the waist and roll up the pants. Of course, it's like a bespoke, you know, custom craft type industry right now. And so it tends to be on the more expensive side. I've been lucky. I have been able to use lots of hand-me-downs. And I would also say like something that was like very cheery to me to discover the secondhand clothing market, certainly in Toronto was flourishing for children's clothing. You can find adorable secondhand stuff at all kinds of stores. Like even a store that sells like baby goods that are traditionally new, they also offered like to consign your kids clothing. So you could take in and you can go to, they have, they have stores that are specifically like high-end kids' clothing. So again, my impractical pair of Tom's baby shoes, like, okay, those were probably not cheap. You can get like ridiculous like guest outfits for kids, like high-end brand stuff, which is ridiculous because why would you ever spend that kind of money on somebody who's going to wear it for two and a half seconds? But leaving that aside, you can get that. But with the higher brands, you do sometimes get the higher quality, right? So you can get some like really nice stuff for very reasonable prices, and so something that actually was like a very easy win, I would say parenting win for communicating our values to our, our family uh, has been buy secondhand because that's a really easy thing people can do because it's so readily available, at least where we live. Uh, it was really easy to say, hey, I know you want to buy our kids adorable clothing. Like, could you do us a favor and just and buy it from a secondhand store? Because they're like a dime a dozen once you know what you're looking for and you can find some really cute stuff. Uh, my grandmother-in-law is a particular, 
She's a gem. She finds the cutest stuff at the secondhand stores for both of my kids. So. But then again, like toys, honestly, would be the third and the most annoying. Like the thing I think that gets to me the most is like little plastic toys, little toys with like batteries in them and things that like light up. And because they, there's not really anything you can do with those. You can't, you can't recycle them. Like you can maybe sell them on or like pass them on to, to stores. But it's, it's like everybody who is a parent knows that these toys are crap. It's like nobody, even the secondhand stores don't want to take them because nobody's going to buy them. They're so omnipresent and everywhere and just constantly, you know, gifted and, and you can't, yeah, like you can't take, like, how do you recycle a doll? Like you can't really, unless it's completely made of fabric and, you know, whatever you, you can't, most of them aren't, they're not recyclable. They're just, they become garbage right away, which is really upsetting and frustrating and like has been a big sticking point with a lot of stuff and you know like mcdonald's still gives those crappy happy meal plastic toys that break in two and a half seconds and oh no but you should hold on to those because i saw on ebay that um the i don't know if you guys remember the inspector gadget set that mcdonald's did when inspector gadget movie came out look i went to mcdonald's a lot but anyways i recognize <laughs> this toy and if you can buy it on eBay now for like a hundred dollars, so Sarah, just like a little, just a little tip there. Maybe you should hang on to these McDonald's toys. <laughs> I should. That can go. That can go to their college fund. Great. Well, it's it's funny. That's like one of the one of the points that I put in like the gift giving note. I said this, of course, way too long note to my family, to my partner's family, basically being like, we love that you love our children, but like you can't buy them that much stuff. Like you can't. But like a, a non-zero factor is we have so much stuff for them already and like you got to try and put yourself in the mindset of a four-year-old okay well you've been playing in your playroom or with your toys all week and they're everywhere and now you don't even know it's like trying to work when there's like stacks of paper and you know you it's impossible you don't even know where to start you don't even know where to find the thing that you might want to play with like you wouldn't even know where to look Sarah, have you tried what I do with my cats, which is hiding a bunch of the toys for several months and then bringing them back out like they're new? Yes. It's called toy rotation, actually, and it's very popular among the moms of Instagram. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> one, of, one of the similarities between my children and yours. <laughs> but like, yeah, and again, like getting them to clean up. Like, how do you how do you even start? Like, you don't know where to put stuff. Like, you don't know. And like, there's some stuff I don't mind having a lot of. Like my elder daughter is like super into crafting, like coloring. Okay, like having markers, like fine. We don't need to buy markers for the next 10 years. Also like fine. It's not ideal, but like it is what it is. And that's fine. I can keep track of that. That's one thing. But like she doesn't, like the story about the dolls, like that's a true story. My mother-in-law messaged me the other day and she was like, can I buy her this like Elsa doll, this frozen doll? I was like, no, she has three. She literally has three. She does not need another one. She doesn't need two of the ones she already has, right? Like, it's, <laughs> like this is like way over the top, unnecessary, you know, stuff. <laughs> Just so much stuff. So, okay. Um, some strategies that you found for reducing waste um, around clothing is buying secondhand. I had sort of canvassed some other parents as well, and uh, they suggested uh, clothing swaps with parents that you know, buy nothing groups. That's something that we recommend on the podcast a lot, but they're super useful. Um, and then uh, one of my friends had come across what's called rescue clothes, which is basically like um, 
when companies produce too much of clothes, they'll oftentimes sell rescue clothes. Um, And so you're sort of diverting from landfill that way, even though they're not secondhand. Before we get too far away from the Buy Nothing groups, I just want to quickly shout out mine because a video game that I'm really excited to play came out this weekend and I went to the Buy Nothing group and I was like, in search of a PlayStation 4 or 5 to borrow for two weeks and in exchange, you will get this video game. And someone came back to me and I'm picking up a a, a PlayStation 4 tonight. So, you know, what? Buy Nothing groups, you guys, I, do, I wouldn't have even thought of it, but I have now and just they're the best. They are the best, and and there's some really, really solid ones for new parents, and I strongly encourage anybody who is about to become a parent or is a new parent to check it out, especially if you're getting really overwhelmed by the cost of some items, because I know friends who've gotten, like, very high-end strollers for nothing, uh, breast pumps for nothing. Like, you you can get a lot of really good stuff on the Buy Nothing group, especially as a new parent. That stuff's only really useful for, like, a year, maybe two. And then people are like, what do I do with this? And if you're okay financially, the process of selling is such a ball ache that it's like, I'll just give this to someone who needs it, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. No, absolutely. I feel like uh, buy nothing groups are sort of low key, the most important thing Facebook's doing right now. (laughs) Like the only reason I keep my account is to message friends and buy nothing groups. But anyway. All right. I think I've been through all the themes I wanted to get through. Um, but Sarah, is there anything that like you wish we'd asked or that you'd like to tell everybody before we wind down? I don't think so. I mean, that was a really good conversation. I think, you know, if I can ever impart any sort of wisdom to anybody who's trying to be a parent, it's like, like, go with your gut, right? Like you're and, and also just do your best. Also, that is just general advice for human beings in general. Just try your best. You know, like you're, you're never going to get it perfectly right, but that's okay. Right. You're just trying your best. And that's, I I am a firm believer that that is the takeaway that your children are going to get from you is that you tried your best and you admitted when you made mistakes and you learned and you grew. I think that's, they're going to look at that and they're going to emulate that. And I think that's ultimately going to make them better people and better contributing members of society you know, trust your instinct, go with your gut. You, you know, your kid best, you know, your parenting style best. Don't let the internet get you down. (laughs) What you see on Instagram is a highlight reel. It is not real life. (laughs) Like, remember that, please. I don't know. Otherwise, it was great to chat. I, you become a parent and you want to talk about parenting stuff all the time, because it's like omnipresent in your mind. But then you have friends who aren't parents and you're like, I don't want to be annoyed. So this was a great forum for me to be able to spew my verbal parenting diarrhea out at a receptive audience. So I appreciate that, guys. Thank you. No, thanks for coming on. I learned so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we really appreciate it. And we're very receptive. I love talking about parenting or listening to people talk about parenting or reading about it. I I don't know what it is. I'm not interested in actually becoming a parent myself, but I think the idea of raising a human being from scratch is so fascinating. <laughs> I agree. It, it is. And it's cool. It's cool to watch your kid come online. Like it's cool to watch a little kid like figure something out or like really internalize an idea and like think about it and kind of make it their own. Uh, it's it is a very cool thing to watch and observe. Thank you so much for joining us. I know that this is a topic that Kristen and I have been meaning to do since day one. So we really appreciate getting you on here. And you covered so many topics that are so important that I'm sure a lot of our our friends listening who are parents themselves, I'm sure we're nodding along the whole time. (laughs) 
And uh, I really appreciate that you that you joined us. And uh, I'm excited to have you back on the pod one day to maybe do a New Year's Eve quiz with us. Who knows? Ooh, <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, guys. If people want to engage with Kristen and I more, you can find us on Elon Musk's dumpster fire Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Because we're too inept to figure out Mastodon. Like, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Someone tell us how to Mastodon. I don't know. <laughs> we are at Pullback Podcast, although I have considered buying a blue tag and becoming at Elon Musk. So we'll see uh, if I if that urge uh, <laughs> develops. Or or in, in order to not get banned, he'll let you do other people. So maybe, maybe I'll become like the president or something. We'll see. But for now, you can find us at Pullback Podcast. <laughs> And you can find shows similar to ours on our network, the Harbinger Media Network. You can find it at harbingermedianetwork.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you on the next episode. <laughs>